Shandy Chernow, and you're listening to the Shandyland podcast. Today, I have someone who is doing so much good, and I am so excited to have her. Her name is Wendy Gordon-Paik. She is the founder and volunteer executive director of Food Diversity. Thank you so much for being here, and thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you, Shandy. Your podcast does so much to elevate the conversation on food allergies to normalize it, to help people who don't know about food allergies learn more. And then for those of us who do manage food allergies to know what it's like to, you know, a day in the life of those with food allergies. So thank you for the- We're just normal people, right? Kind of doing the thing and trying to make it through every single day and every single meal. And you are so right. And um, we're both doing outreach and I appreciate your including me in your outreach and yeah, just can't wait to have this chat with you. So thanks I'm glad for inviting to have me. you. So especially for the people outside of the Carolinas, tell us what food diversity does. How did you start it? Why did you start it? I know there's a ton of questions and a lot of information in there. So I'll, I'll jump in along the way, but tell us all about it. I think it's such important work. Thank you. Well, first of all, food diversity is a direct connection to resources for individuals who are living with food allergy and celiac disease. And I'm sure you've read about that. One thing that um, isn't quite as obvious on social media and the information we put out is that we are a central hub. So basically we've cinched together organizations that are known in the greater community for providing services for food allergies and people with celiac disease. And then we provide resources to these organizations in our network as they provide the much needed service to the community at large. Um, What makes us different is that we focus on simple solutions, collaborative solutions to complex historical challenges that revolve around access. So for the parents of children who have food allergies or for the children themselves or siblings or grandparents, we are best friends living with food allergies and celiac disease. Um, Our solutions are really simple. Um, We raise awareness, we provide educational and financial support and we increase access. So my understanding is that you focus a lot on um, people within our community, food allergy folks who are struggling with food insecurity. Do I have that right? Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, we've all seen the images of the long lines at the food pantries. Mm -hmm. And um, a story that really hit close to home for me as a mom was a story about a mom who has three kids. And she was talking about how is the middle of the month and her checking account was sitting right above zero and she still had two more weeks before her next paycheck. And she looked in the refrigerator and she talked about having nothing, milk and cheese and pickles. And, and so she at that point was going to have to rely on the goodwill of a food pantry. And so they asked her, you know, what did it feel like standing in that long line and, um, what I sensed from her was, of course, gratitude. And, and also, sadly, you know, a kind of a sense of shame. And then she talked about getting the box and going home 
and finding out that she could only feed two of her babies, not all three, because she has a child with food allergies and nothing in that box was safe for her child. So, I mean, really it's stories like this that inspired, I know, the work of food diversity because the risk of hunger is real and preventing others from experiencing that um, sinking feeling of helplessness became my mission. So my uh, dream was, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. You're, no, I, I'm never gonna cut off a sentence that starts with my dream. Oh, thank you. My dream was to create a link, a connection between the network of resources that I know about and those who need the resources the most. So from my experiences, I know firsthand, excuse me, how hard it can be. And especially when all you want is to be able to feed your baby. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, yeah. So this, we're recording this in a super timely time for me. Um, I know we're not releasing it at that time. So sorry guys who are listening because I'm totally going to screw this up for you on the calendar, but right now we're recording. It's the week before Christmas. Gosh, I knew we weren't going to get through this podcast without tears. Oh. So in my neighborhood, great neighborhood, we do a um, cocoa hut, which sounds crazy, but everybody on the street puts all these crazy lights up and we make kind of a Griswold Christmas and we have this cocoa hut and we give out hot cocoa and cookies and blah, blah, blah. And we raise money and collect food for St. Mary's Food Bank. Last year, we raised $17,000 and 16, oh, or I'm sorry, 6,000 pounds of food. So $17,000, 6,000 pounds of food. So far this year, we've got $13,000. And today is me and the kids night at the Cocoa Hut. So as we're talking about this with food insecurity, and we go outside and look at all the food that has been donated, which is amazing. There is so much of it that so many people can't have. Right. Right. And that's the same at food pantries. That's yeah. the same as the meals that go home for the weekend for kids, for students in schools who um, need food for the weekend. So they get yeah. backpacks on Friday at dismissal and chances are not much in that bag will be things that they can eat. So it's really sad and hard. Yeah, it's so frustrating, right? And there's so many right. implications to food insecurity beyond the, the feeling of hunger, the feeling of, of, you know, kind of not being able to know where that next thing is coming from. You know, I talked to my kids about this too, and I'd love to hear your insights. You know, imagine going to school without having had, you know, dinner or breakfast that morning. And then what does that lead to later in life when you haven't been able to get, you know, good grades or whatever the case may be? Right. Right. It's a never ending cycle because just as studies have shown that breakfast in school raises test scores. I mean, I think it was in third grade where you take those math tests that basically decide your path for the rest of your school career. Um, the same with weekend food. I mean, you know, you go to school on hung you go to school hungry on Monday and you really can't get in the groove until after lunch on Monday. Yeah. So yeah, it's sad. And then also, like you said, going back to food allergies, the, um, the isolation and the sickness adds even more stress to a mom or a family. And it also puts a great strain on resources. Yeah. That, so then um, you intersect you know, those two issues for a kid, right? 
and right. the implications are ungood. Right. I'm yeah. I'm thinking back to um, well, I think I told you I have two sons, and they're both grown now. One is 25, and one's 23. And my 25-year-old has a multiple list a list of multiple food allergies, and my 23-year-old has absolutely no dietary restrictions. And so, um, you know, you think back to 25 years ago and how different things were. So, I mean, 25 years ago, you didn't see egg-free, wheat-free, gluten-free, or gluten-free, dairy-free products at a store. In fact, labeling laws were even haphazard. So you would get a label, and unless you had, you know, some kind of scientific degree, you couldn't figure out if it had dairy and egg in it. And then um, the internet, it was very different, right? So like, <laughs> yeah. nobody was on the phone, then you could get on the internet. So remember dial up internet. So it's like, nobody get on the phone, I'm doing my research. And there was no such thing as um, an online support group or Google search. And then the medical research was not even close to conclusive either. So everything that children and parents are told now about managing food allergies is completely opposite of what we were told 25 years ago. <laughs> sure. So, and so 25 years ago, you know, I was having such a hard time feeding my child. And, and so that's where, you know, the, the stress around food allergies comes because I'm thinking my son was sick. I didn't have any place to turn. We were the only family that I knew of that had food allergies. And we were the only family that my friends and family knew who had food allergies. So basically, we didn't have a support system. We didn't have anywhere to turn. We didn't have any foods we could trust. We didn't have information and education that was accessible. And we had to drive hours away to go to a research hospital just to get information that's commonplace now. So well, and even though things are yeah. commonplace now, that feeling that, that food allergy parents, food allergy families, food allergy adults have is that it's still really hard to figure out what it is that's true and what it is that right that's right right so i totally empathize with the experience that you had at that time i think people probably feel very similarly even now i agree because i know we had to experiment with formulas then just to see what works and i know yeah. parents now still have that same situation and that's another story that really brought the access um front and center for me is when we finally did find a formula after probably two months of my son being sick and not being able to keep anything down, it was a formula that we could only get at one grocery store, thankfully a local grocery store. And I remember one day I was going through the grocery line and, you know, the cashier was putting all the stuff on the conveyor belt and ringing up. And I heard her say, oh, I think that rang up wrong. And, you know, you're not really paying attention. And I was like, what, what? And she said, I think your formula rang up wrong. It shows it's like 40 something dollars. And I said, no, that's the cost. And so that just illustrates how much more expensive foods that are safe tend to be. And then, you know, how hard it can be to find some of the products. 
Yeah, no doubt. It's uh, it's incredibly expensive depending on what your allergies are to try and avoid those things. And then certainly if you're in a position of food insecurity, getting access to those. So where, where can people figure out what are the right things to be donating to a food bank? Um, I guess that's not quite the right question, not the right things, but what can the people donate that is maybe low in supply that would be extra helpful for families who have different dietary restrictions? You know, I suppose, you know, things that are in the top eight free types of categories, but, you know, and people have a tendency to donate things that are high calorie, peanut butter and milk and dairy, right. et cetera. And that's so a great question. What would be the, the right set of things to add to the existing supply that would help fill in some of those holes? So I can answer it a couple different ways. Um, the first thing, and one thing that we have high school volunteers who help us a lot with is you go onto a pantry's website and most pantries have a list of priority needs. And what you do is, is try to find allergy friendly versions of those priority needs, whether it's a lot of times you'll see pasta. So of course, gluten-free pasta, bread, gluten-free bread. And so that's a great way to um, decide what the best items and what is most needed at that time. But um, one story or one issue, I guess, with food, that food pantries or one challenge that food pantries face is inventory control. So mm. you never know who's going to walk through your door that's and right. you never know what someone's going to donate. So that's kind of one of the reasons that food diversity came into play and where I learned so much in the webinar that I'd mentioned um, that I heard back in June 2020 that Food Equality Initiative sponsored. I learned that there are gaps in emergency providers solutions for addressing this need. And that's why I went back to the drawing board and said, wait a minute, we have to find a better way to address this. I'm so glad that you did because the solutions that you guys are providing are so helpful to so many people. And I feel like, you know, by virtue of having these types of conversations, perhaps more people will find that they, I have a dog going crazy downstairs. <laughs> Gotta love winter break. I feel like more people will realize that there are options for them, maybe at their local food pantries when they know that there are organizations like yours, you know, dipping their toe into the water and, and trying to help with this particular problem. I wonder how many people don't go, um, you know, to the local food pantries or, or other resources like that, because they don't feel like they might be able to have anything that they can have. Right. And that is one area that we work with food pantries on. We, we talk to them about being welcoming from the second someone comes into the pantry and asking, do you have any, any restrictions? And we also put together flyers that tell them where they can get food direct, sent directly to their homes. And we help with funding for that. And that's where um, food diversity really puts its effort is trying to figure out how to get food into the hands of people who need it without having to go through the process of going from grocery store to grocery store, possibly when they don't have the time or the transportation 
or going to a food pantry and coming out empty handed. So knowing that local food pantries are trying to help people out, what, obviously, but I mean, specifically with dietary restrictions as well, what, what things do you wish that A, those food pantries knew and other resources? I realize I'm sweeping with a broad brush there, right? Like any, any, any local resources, what do you wish that they knew about food allergies, celiac, other, you know, food intolerances, And what about the people who are donating things? What information would you want to get out to that group of people genuinely trying to help food insecure people to make sure that they are being inclusive of people who can't necessarily have all those things that they're giving out? For people who are donating, of course, I would recommend looking at the priority needs of of a pantry and finding the allergy safe versions and and typically those are going to be more expensive they're going to be the brand names not the generic the gluten-free not the um you know standard pasta for pantries um it can go a couple different routes of course being welcoming when when a guest comes in um also thinking about the wraparound services that are connected with pantries. So a lot of pantries have a medical clinic that they're connected with. And this is where food diversity would step in. So for instance, a patient or a client is diagnosed with a food allergy and maybe even referred to a social worker. Mm And so they're set, they're told, okay, you're allergic to this, this, and this. And so you need to eat foods that don't contain those allergens. And you need to purchase this medicine and come back to see us. And this is how you respond to an allergic reaction. And, you know, they give you like 10 pages of information. And food diversity's place in this process would be saying to the practitioner, whether it's the physician or the social worker, hey, let's hold this patient's hand just a little bit longer. One more and step. right, and make sure that whatever plan you are giving to this patient, they're able to comply with that. They're able to get the food. They're able to oh, afford the medicine. Point. Yeah. Right. And, and that if they, they can't here are some resources that might help them be able to. Exactly. I love that. Right. And so what we've done is with these different um, clinics or hospital or healthcare systems or physicians, um, since we are introducing a new idea, we also say, and we'll help you pilot it. Um, Food Diversity would love to fund this solution not forever, but just so you can see, hey, does it work? Hey, does the patient um, end up in the emergency room less? Have you been hearing, um, when you saw the patient, did they seem healthier? Did they um, say their quality of life is better? Do they feel, does a social worker say they feel more comfortable managing their condition? And so that's where that's when we feel like we've um, achieved our mission. It's when we actually put the resources with the people in need. 
and we have a whole network of resources. And so that's when we activate that network and we figure out this partner can help with this. And then we, of course, add philanthropy to bolster that solution just so we can make sure we have the end result that we're looking for. Yeah, I, I absolutely love it. You guys work largely in uh, North Carolina? Actually, we're nationwide. We start, I'm in North Carolina now. So we started with Carolina Food Diversity, and that's what we do business as in North and South Carolina. We've also helped clients as far as Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia. And my son now, the son with food allergies is in Boston. So I'm thinking, oh, we might want to move into Massachusetts too. So we're open to work anywhere in the nation. I mean, especially in this remote, I mean, I've done everything, you know, from a stay at home perspective. So, you know, (laughs) have Zoom, we'll travel, so to speak. So, so what does Utopia for food diversity look like? Oh, wow. Um, Of course, that everyone has access to safe foods, to the information they need to stay safe and to stay out of the emergency department and to continuing education and support with the end result being positive health outcomes. I love it. So, yeah. So that's Access. kind of a bunch of my, a bunch of my um, values all mixed into one, right? Yeah. So well, they're all good. Yeah. Values. That, yeah, that. Um, so and I, oh, go ahead. I want to go back in time a little bit. Like I adore all the things that you're doing at Food Diversity. Anything that we can ever do to help, please let me know. But thank before you. Before that, a good bit before that, you had a really cool gig. And that was with oh. the Olympics when it was in Atlanta. So I love, loved, you guys know this. I love talking about people who have like the coolest job ever. And for Uh me, being anywhere near the Olympics definitely qualifies as the coolest job ever. So talk to me about that. Tell me what you did and what it was like and who was the coolest person that you got to hang out with and like all that stuff. So my job was designing and developing the training program, the general orientation part of the training program for the 40,000 plus volunteers. Um, 60,000 if you add the corporate volunteers into that mix. And so what my goal was, or our goal was. That's a lot of volunteers, by the way. It was a lot of volunteers. And we had a whole department of volunteer services. So we had people who were working on um, volunteer register applications, people who were working on volunteer uniform. We had a whole uniform facility where people would come and get fit for their uniforms. But um, my role was to instill into volunteers, first of all, an appreciation of the Olympic movement, understanding that we were the 100th anniversary of the modern Olympic Games. And then also- I mean, the Olympic spirit's almost as good as the Christmas spirit, right? Like- Oh my gosh. It's I mean, so that awesome. was what it was all about. I know, I get so excited <laughs> talking about it. And so once we, you know, gave the historical foundation, then our job was to 
explain to volunteers, no matter what your job, you are a critical part of the success of the Atlanta Olympic Games. So no matter if you are in a, remember Atlanta, summer, July, August, if you are in 110 degrees in the remote parking lot where people are catching their shuttles and you're out there for four, your four hour shift and you never see a volunteer, I mean, I'm sorry, you never see an athlete, you never even see a venue, you are still a key piece to the success of the games. And so just instilling that spirit yeah, and it was so much fun. That's so. almost working, like working at Disney, right? Like it, I, it's, know, it's, it was great. I think it's really, really cool, but I have questions. So okay. do you have the cool outfit that the athletes get? Well, I had the volunteer outfit and remember it was 25 years ago and my son's 25. So <laughs> I know. So I had the cute outfit, but then it was a sport. So I don't know if it was that cute really, but they um, made me one that was suitable for, you know, a maternity outfit, but really I worked there for two years and um, I'd already gotten redeployed. I mean, I, my, you know, once we trained the volunteers, my job was, was finished. So I got redeployed to the Georgia Dome and, and that's where basketball and gymnastics were going to be. And I, I was so excited but that's okay I probably didn't need to be in that situation when you decide to go fix if there is a problem I don't know if there's a problem there's no accusation in this question when you decide to go fix the food allergies for the athletes at the Olympic Games going forward let me know I'm in okay okay yeah I want the cool outfit and I want to go fix the food allergies for the athletes athletes if you're listening and you have food allergies and you need help at the Olympic Games we're your girls Okay. Yeah. All right. Love it. Because I think that that's just like giddy. So cool. Mm-hmm. I know. All right. So I'm going to get off of my little like schoolgirl crush on the Olympics thing and let uh, everybody know where they can connect with you and food diversity online. We are working on a website. In the meantime, we are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And I'm, I'm also on LinkedIn and would love to connect with anybody who wants more information. Remember that food diversity is food and diversity combined. And so they share the D. There's only one D. And if you're interested in being one of our partners, please reach out to me. If you're interested in supporting in any way, I, you know, it, it takes a lot to, to do this work. So I am always open to um, anyone who wants to get involved. Perfect. I love it. All right. So we get to the, the, the favorite part of everybody that probably nobody listens to, but if anybody is listening and are interested in what Wendy's two truths and a lie are, now's the time. So you're going to give us three facts about yourself, two of which are true. And one of which is less than true, no particular order. And don't tell us the answer. Okay. Let me think. Because one of mine was about the Olympics. <laughs> okay, well, I think, yeah, I was, as you know, I was born and raised in Georgia. Um, before I worked for the Olympic Games, I worked for a software company and developed the software that the programmers use to develop their software. 
And I went to college at UNC Chapel Hill when Michael Jordan played there. Oh, you got this whole history with cool. So I'm dating myself. I know. I like it. Wendy, thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate it. What great work you're doing. Any support that we can provide, obviously, please let me know. Listeners, as always, this has been the Shandyland podcast. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks for listening. And we will talk to you soon. And so will Jasper the dog.